I don't think any of us really understood how serious the problem was. That's my dad. Hi, Dad. Hey, kiddo. We've been talking about the climate crisis. I know, kill surprise. A little bit of a different angle this time, though. This week, it's not about the what's and the why's, but rather the who's and the how's and a couple of when's. As in, whose fault is it? When did you know? And how could you let this happen? Really fun. <laughs> Let's rewind to the beginning. I'm Sarah, and this is The Big Melt. It's like a real studio down here. Are those egg cartons? Yeah. I recycled our empty ones for soundproofing. Huh. Um, do you want me to sit? Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so, what did you want to interview me about? I wanted to ask you how... I wanted to ask you about... You know, I wanted to tell you how... Mad it makes me to think that we've known about global warming for like 50 years and all of you have done basically nothing. Okay, uh, I can hear you're upset. It's like you want to pretend we're all equally responsible for the problem, but we're not. We inherited it from you. It's like, it's like, imagine if Kyle and I threw a massive house party and trashed everything while you're out. If we threw garbage everywhere and lit the couch on fire and dumped olive oil in the fish tank and littered our neighbor's yard, and when you got home, instead of apologizing and cleaning up, we just shrugged our shoulders and said, well, we all share the same house, so everyone has to help clean. Are you okay? Yeah. It's just... It feels like you guys had all the fun and we're the ones who have to clean up the mess. And when things get really bad, you won't have to be there. It's scary. Hmm. I hear you. I really do. I think about this a lot. I don't know if I can make it better. But what I can do is share my experiences and maybe together we can figure out why it took everyone such a long time to act. Well, I do have some questions prepared. Did you want to go through them? Yeah. Okay. I'll do my best. The Big Melt! Okay. So... When did you first hear about global warming? Well, I mean, it wasn't talked about like that at first. I'm trying to do this in reverse. But I think the first thing I was aware of was that the ice caps were getting smaller. I remember seeing graphics about this on CBC maybe in the early 90s. And uh, when did you know how serious the problem was? Probably when the superstorm started happening. (laughs) When did Hurricane Katrina happen? Mid-2000s? Yeah, 2005. Yeah, yeah. I think it was around then we were hearing about the flooding of coastal land and about how the storms were going to get more and more violent. And then, poof, there it was. This event that really showed you the human cost of it. Just devastating. So... Did you feel like you had to do something? Well, of course, I 
became more conscious of it. Actually, you know, one of the reasons why it's hard to remember exactly when I first heard about it is because at the time, the big issue was the hole that had developed over the Antarctic in the ozone layer. When that happened, I remember making an overnight switch, cutting down on AC, no hairspray, no spray deodorant. Sounds small, but it felt important. Okay, let's pause there and then rewind, but a little further back this time. My dad just brought up a really interesting moment in environmental history, one I've actually mentioned before. If you've ever wondered if it's possible for the whole world to work together towards a common goal, then listen up, because it is. We've done it before. In 1985, scientists detected an enormous hole that had opened up in the ozone layer over Antarctica. The ozone layer, BT dubs, is a thin layer of concentrated ozone, a gas made of three oxygen molecules that's located in the Earth's stratosphere about 10 kilometers above the surface. Although this layer is super thin, it absorbs most of the UV radiation that reaches the Earth, which is important. (laughs) Because without it absorbing excess radiation, you'd barely be able to spend five minutes outside without burning. So over the course of the 1970s, scientists figured out that there was a connection between chemicals used in refrigerators and aerosol cans and the depletion of the ozone layer. And when the hole was officially recognized in 1985, the scientific community, alongside activist groups and politicians, sprang into action. Despite pushback from the chemical industry, in 1987, the Montreal Protocol on Substances that depleted the ozone layer was adopted. And now it includes 197 countries and is widely considered to be the most successful environmental project uh, ever. (laughs) It's been so successful that by 2050, the hole is expected to be completely healed. Not to mention that phasing out 99% of all ozone-depleting substances accidentally ended up being one of the most important measures against climate change ever. Oh, I was hoping you'd bring this up. Dad. I'm doing an informative segment here. Oh, sorry, sorry. Do your thing. So it turns out those ozone-depleting substances are incredibly powerful greenhouse gases capable of capturing thousands of times more heat than CO2. By limiting their use, we actually prevented a worldwide temperature increase of two and a half degrees Celsius. So, I guess you could say my generation made the whole world cooler. Pretty cool. Hey, in this case. But what about, like, everything else? Shouldn't adults be held accountable for the way things are? I mean, that's a hard one. Uh, The boomers, obviously. We produce the majority of the carbon dioxide, so we're to blame. But I think that's problematic. Because as soon as you go, okay, boomer, you split the generations. I don't think you're going to get anywhere with that. This requires understanding, cooperation, and support across all generations. But what do you think that looks like? Intergenerational cooperation? Yeah. This is going to have to take change at a profound level. But I think the younger generation knows that. Um, 
it's it's going to take communication and leadership. I think capitalism in its present form can't exist. I think classic extractionism can't exist. I think technology has to be part of the solution, but I don't know if high tech alone will save us. I, I think it comes down to weathering these transitions together. I think it's also about not being fatalistic, about focusing on what you can do. Small but scalable solutions. Scalable? Yeah, things that can be applied both on an individual level and en masse. Like composting, using reusable containers, green architecture. Things that when one person does it, it helps, but when billions of people do it, it changes the world. You know, I just talked to a bunch of students, and they had a lot to say about this. Oh, really? Yeah. Let me play it. My mom told me a few times that, like, recycling was never really a thing until when she was my age, maybe. I don't remember. My dad doesn't even believe in global warming. He says it's just for money. I, I think I asked my parents once, and they kind of looked at me. And there's like, we do things every day, and something, some things we can't stop from doing. It just kind of happens. It's something that we haven't been around to create, and it's not something that we should have to deal with. Just like my grandfather had to deal with the Second World War, at his generation. We shouldn't have to deal with our parents' problems. I don't know if it, I mean, we caused part of it, so then I feel like we should be dealing with it. Another generation, like our kids, are gonna have to go through what we did. Just 10 times worse, because we are just gonna do the same things our parents did without noticing, and then it's just gonna make it worse unless we fix our problems. You know, it is so, tricky. Like, on one hand, I feel really hopeful to hear that regardless of what generation we were born into, we're all concerned that we all want to fix things. But then when we get onto the topic of who's to blame, it's still really hard not to feel angry. Even though at this point, I know pointing fingers is kind of pointless. I don't know. Maybe it's not pointless. Maybe working through those feelings is part of fixing the problem. You know, I think, uh... I think you may be right. Uh... Huh. What? While doing research, I discovered that there's actually an entire field of study devoted to the unfairness of climate change. Really? Yeah, it's called climate justice. It, it's basically like a different angle to look at the whole problem. Like, not in terms of biology or climate science, but as an ethical issue. Looking at the politics of it. It involves crimes through time. Time crimes? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> time crimes. I have the contact info of Professor Perkins. Climate justice is her field of expertise. It's what she teaches at York University. I could give her a call. Maybe catch her between classes. Hello? Oh, hi. Is this Professor Perkins? Yes. Hi, my name's Sarah. I'm doing a podcast about climate change, and I wanted to talk with you about climate justice. Is that okay? I'd be happy to speak with you about that. 
Great. So my first question is, what is climate justice all about? All right. So the question of climate justice is there are certain people here that are benefiting and a lot of people that are not benefiting from economic growth, but also from international trade and all of the things that have driven the climate crisis. Climate justice is a phrase that implies the vision that we can, as humanity, address the climate crisis in a fair way. We can address not only the crisis itself, but we can also do that in a way that increases the level of justice in the world, that allows those who have not caused the problem, but who are suffering from it, to be taken into account And in a sense, you could say that that those injustices can be rectified as we move away from fossil fuels towards a fairer world economy. That sounds so important. Now, I saw this term intergenerational justice. Could you possibly explain what that means? So you know how uh, First Nations talk about seven generations? Since we're alive now and we think three generations back, that's our parents, our grandparents and our great-grandparents. Most of us know who our great-grandparents were, where they lived, how they lived, right? And then you look three generations into the future, your own children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. It's kind of the limits of our ability to perceive and to, you know, realistically have a grasp on, right? But that's seven generations. That's a long time. And if you think about living your life now so that your great-grandchildren can look back and see you as a good ancestor and living your life now so that you are honoring the ethics or the spirit of how your great-grandparents saw their trajectory on earth, then you automatically have a longer time frame for what, what your personal decisions are and what your political decisions are. This is what I've learned by reading and listening to Indigenous elders and knowledge sharers And I think it's such a gift that we have those kinds of perspectives to consider in this time of crisis for humanity. Hmm. Yeah. It sounds really amazing to look at things this way. Yes. Uh, But then would you say that previous generations have more responsibility towards future generations? Shouldn't we blame our parents' generation for having all the fun, not thinking about the future, and leaving this mess for us to clean up? Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm probably part of that generation. <laughs> but I sometimes I think about that, too, and I think about my own parents' generation. And it's like we, we as humans tend to not look towards stuff that we don't want to see. So when Ford comes out with a bigger car and somebody's marketing those SUVs and you think, oh, well, you know, that would be cool. I could go, I could get there faster. I could take, you know, the neighborhood kids as well as my own. Uh, you, you don't think about the downside of it because you're not being encouraged to do that and you don't really want to do that. So we, I think we have to have um, a little bit of generosity of spirit and understand how humans always do this. But when we know things, when the information comes out and you start to realize, wait a minute, there's a downside to this, then I think it's the responsibility of all of us to pay attention to those things, to pay attention to that new information, not to continue to bury our heads in the sand. Yeah, okay. Generosity of spirit. I can kind of see your point. 
But like in your experience, isn't it sometimes a little bit harder for older people to change? Nobody should ever be that old. <laughs> you, 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 have to, you have to take the new information and, 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 and bring it into your own, own decision-making, but also into your politics and also into your empathy and solidarity with people who have less flexibility than you or less privilege. Especially the older generations who have gotten used to living in this way. We need to be able to say, you know what? Um, we're not so old that we can't modify our ideas. I totally agree. Everyone should be a part of it. Now, a bit more of a personal question. Isn't it hard to deal all the time with injustice and to see all the negative effects of climate change on people's lives? Um, people take environmental studies because I think people see it as one of the very important challenges that we all face in this particular time, right? What, what is more important than trying to understand and do something about the climate crisis. And what we have long fought in the environmental studies faculty is a sense of gloom and doom or depression. You know, sometimes, sometimes after the first, the introductory course in first year, students are like, oh, every week it's so depressing. We hear more and more about these problems that are happening. Well, yeah, but I think that right now, partly because of the youth climate movement, partly because of the incredible resurgence of, of indigenous leadership, how it's possible to live in a sustainable way in these ecosystems, on this earth. We have the evidence of people who have done that for thousands and thousands of years. So the idea that there's no way out, that it's all a cul-de-sac, that it's all doom and gloom, has been debunked, right? That's not true. There are so many solutions. There are so many things that we can do, so many things that people already are doing. So I personally feel much more optimistic than I did 10 or 15 years ago about these questions because more and more people are paying attention and working on it. And when we work on it, things happen. Oh, yeah. I hope it continues that way. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us and explaining to us about climate justice. It sounds so important. Thanks. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> she's incredible. Right? It's crazy exciting that she's part of creating a whole new field of study. Oh, wait. Let's take a super quick break for this message. Now, let's get back to the pod. Hey, Dad. You want to set up the climate myth for this week? Really? Yeah. Okay. It's climate myth-busting time! How was that? Aced it. Alright, so most of our climate myths so far dealt with things that people say to reduce the importance of climate change, or saying that it doesn't even happen at all. This climate myth is special because it's more about how even environmentalists and people who care about the planet can spread misinformation or inaccuracies themselves. The summer of 2019 brought a storm of epic proportions, a Twitter storm, class five. Politicians were retweeting celebrities. Celebrities were tweeting satellite images of memes. Everyone was in hysterics over fires burning in the Amazon. The silent screams of all caps tweets rang out across the internet, crying, 
the lungs of the earth are on fire and the rainforest makes 20% of our oxygen and we need O2 to survive. Now, you know I'm all about activism and raising your voice, but here's the thing. Other than that last one about needing oxygen to survive, technically, none of that is true. I know, it's shocking. But Leonardo DiCaprio, Cristiano Ronaldo, and the president of France were all spreading misinformation. And I don't just mean they were using a heavy-handed metaphor. Nuh-uh. Pretty much all the hype was, well, just hype. It's true that there were pretty bad fires in Brazil in 2018, but a lot of the pictures shared weren't even of the Amazon, and some were of the Amazon 20 years ago. Details about the problem were wildly exaggerated, and some were just plain wrong. The truth is, the Amazon rainforest is really important, but not because it produces oxygen for the rest of the world. So how did this situation get so out of hand? How did incorrect information get shared millions of times over? Beyond the incredible speed at which social media spreads info, I think this misinformation stems from a basic misunderstanding of plant biology. I mean, we all know that plants undergo photosynthesis, meaning that they use energy from the sun to turn carbon dioxide and water into glucose. And most of us vaguely remember that oxygen is a byproduct of this process which is where the lung metaphor comes from. But there's a piece missing. This process just describes how plants make their food, not how they eat it. And as it turns out, plants chow down at night through a process called cellular respiration. They take all of the glucose they produce during the day and combine it with a little over half of the oxygen they released to make some tasty, tasty ATP. The same molecule our own bodies use to transport energy. Other free-loading microbes in the rainforest ecosystem use the rest of the leftover oxygen to break down dead plants and animals. So the total gain in oxygen after everyone's eaten is 0%. Null. Zip. Nothing. It's almost as if the whole system exists in a highly evolved state of balance, eh? But in that case, where does the oxygen we breathe come from? Do you know? Most oxygen comes from bacteria and algae in the oceans. But anyway, this doesn't mean that the Amazon is pointless and we should just let it burn, but its value isn't defined by how much oxygen it produces. But the lung metaphor isn't completely wrong. Rainforests are carbon sinks, meaning that they contain a lot of the carbon dioxide that would otherwise be in the atmosphere. Burning these forests down will release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that will accelerate global warming. Also, old-growth forests are amazing ecosystems that support an incredible amount of biodiversity that is important for all sorts of things. And they provide a home for indigenous communities. The rainforests are precious, and we have to protect them. Just not necessarily because of the oxygen. To figure out why the whole thing felt a little off, I've invited producer Pat from the Reality Check podcast to come and chat. If I dabble in myth-busting, he is a myth-busting Olympian. Their podcast is actually where I first heard about the whole Amazon is the Earth lungs myth. But the point is, if there's someone to ask whether or not facts matter, it's him. 
And it looks like he's online now. Hello? Hi, is this producer Pat? This is producer Pat. Hi, this is Sarah. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Mm. I actually have my own podcast called The Big Melt, and it's all about climate change. And I'm kind of talking about the whole Amazon fires issue, Mm -hmm. like the misinformation about the Amazon fires, and trying to figure out if it matters a lot that it isn't true. Well, that's nice of you to say that you're a fan of the show. And yeah, that's a good one. The Earth's lungs claim. It was uh, quite the thing on social media. We did cover it on our podcast as well. Um, By all means, let's get into it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. So firstly, why do you think this specific case went viral? I mean, it's, it's hard to say why anything goes viral, right? But <laughs> True. It did have a grain of truth. So plants release oxygen during photosynthesis, and pretty much everyone should be concerned if the Earth's oxygen were being depleted. But that's simply not true. Again, I think this is just people having an immediate emotional response and that getting the better of them. But it got everyone's attention and it got so many people involved. So does it really matter that the facts weren't accurate? I think the answer to that is yes, because to me, anyways, the truth matters. People get involved for sure, but it was based on, at the very least, a misunderstanding of the facts. So in this case, there are real issues to be concerned about. And then there are false claims and misinformation, some of it coming from people like politicians and celebrities, and then people posting pictures of like forest fires in like Montana and claiming that this is the Amazon. The waters got really muddy really quickly on this one. Okay, yeah. I understand why truth is important, but we're in the middle of a crisis now. Why is it important to pay attention to accuracy now? Yeah. So if I make the case to you that you should be concerned about the Amazon forest fires because the Earth's oxygen is being depleted, and then you can do some research to find out that that's not true by listening to the Reality Check or this podcast, what happens when I make the case that we should be concerned about fires in the Amazon because of, let's say, the loss of biodiversity? which is actually true. Are you going to chalk me up to being an alarmist or spreading misinformation? I think this comes back to that first point that the truth really does kind of matter. Yeah, it makes sense. People won't believe you anymore. Well, with this podcast, I'm trying to share information and my friends on social media are trying to do a similar thing. So how can we make sure that the information that we're spreading is accurate? Yeah, you have, you have to take that pause. So take the pause. You know, there's a statistic that six out of 10 people won't read past a headline. And so don't be that person. Read past the headline. The, the headline is that they've found a cure for cancer, but then you click through it, and the truth is it's a very small study done on mice. So be informed. Take the extra minute to do a bit of research, and that gives you some sort of confidence that, that, what, you're, that what you're repeating is true. And I, I think we all do bear a responsibility, especially in, in this kind of a clickbaity environment, to, to just take that extra step. So, like, on the topic of research, where should I find it? Like, I like to scroll through my Twitter and see what information I can get from there. Is that a good way to get my facts? <laughs> So I'd say the short answer to that is no. That said, if a world-renowned expert is tweeting about his or her field of expertise, that holds some weight with me. But generally speaking, I think we need to be really cautious about what we read on social media without looking into it further. Okay, so then not social media, but what kind of sources can you trust? So what sources do I trust? None of them. (laughs) (laughs) 
unless they're all kind of stuck together to, to bring together several lines of evidence. The key here is when you're talking about sources, you're talking about multiple sources saying essentially the same thing. You know, it's a really good question. What's being reported by the New York Times or the CBC is generally more reliable than John Smith's personal blog. Fact-checking sites like Snopes and The Straight Dope, they usually do a really good job. I'd even say that Wikipedia has some well-researched and written articles. Again, the key here is you're looking for multiple sources. And so a well-written Wikipedia article, for example, will have citations that you can check. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not an expert or a scientist, so how can I know for sure that what I'm reading is true or not? Correct. So often what you're trying to do is look for the sources, sources. So if, say, an article is referencing a study or an expert or some other article, you want to look at those to see if they actually exist and that they agree. You also want to look at dates. Dates are also important. If, if it's an old news story or study, you want to see if there's more current information on the subject. You also want to look for primary sources. So where did this story originate from? And then that, that can kind of tell you something because if, if, let's say it's a study, but that study was funded by someone who's got special interest in it, well, that tells you something as well. So you're kind of looking at where did this originate from? Is someone just regurgitating a, a press release? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I get it now. These are really great tips. Hmm. Uh, now, just to like sum it all up, how can you become a better online activist? So this is big. Uh, do you want what you're reading to be true because it fits in with your worldview? Or are you having some sort of an immediate visceral reaction to something? It's so easy to retweet something or to share it or sign a petition. But ultimately, is it true or are you just kind of adding to the noise and the misinformation? I'd say to try and take some time to do the research, get informed. And then if it is true and it's important to you, then by all means, get involved. Well, Pat, thank you so much for talking to me. I can't wait to hear your next show. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks. (laughs) Bye. Big Mouth! Weird. I was 100% sure that this episode was going to be all about figuring out whose fault the climate crisis was. But it ended up being all about feelings. How to, like, deal with feelings of injustice. How to not let your emotions run away with you, whether it's well-intentioned spreading of misinformation or getting angry because it feels good to have someone to blame. Figuring out how to let emotions guide us without controlling us might be one of the most important parts of solving climate change. It's all about those feels. And robots. Next week, we'll be talking about robots. Hey, Dad? Yeah, Kato? It was, uh, it was cool doing the episode with you this week. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for letting me tag along. You're doing something pretty amazing. I'm glad you're one of the ones cleaning this mess up. I'm glad we're doing it together. The Big Melt Podcast is brought to you by Earth Rangers and hosted by Sarah Marks. It is written by Lee Lawson, directed by Stefan Richter, and edited by Nitai Steinberg. Production assistance by Avneet Sandhu. To learn more about today's episode or leave us a message, go to bigmeltpodcast.com. You can also take a quick survey for a chance to win a custom t-shirt. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button. And come on, show you care with five stars, please. 
Later, skaters! Hey parents and teachers, have you heard about gzmclassroom.com? It's a website where teachers can get companion resources for everyone's favorite GZM shows. Six Minutes, Mars Patel, Podcast Title Pending, Seis Minutos, The Res, Becoming Mother Nature, Iowa Chapman and the Last Dog, Treasure Island 2020, The Hollow, Young Ben Franklin, and The Big Fib all have companion resources for additional critical thinking, listening comprehension, and ultimately creativity. We made them just for you. And oh yeah, they're free. Free! The people on Facebook didn't believe us, but they are F-R-E-E free. Head to gzmclassroom.com and get yours today. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm Odid. I'm Ethan. I'm Awa. And, and we're, we're a GZM, GZM family. Join us and listen to Fourth and Inches. Here, here we, we go, brownies. Here, here we go. Do you wish this was you? Go to gzmshows.com slash shoutout to learn more. And you may hear your GZM family at the end of a podcast. Let your voice be heard at gcmshows.com slash shout out.